0: Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a British preacher, very prolific preacher in the early and mid-1900s, and in a sermon on Genesis 3, he said this, We are all conscious of problems in this world, problems in our own personal lives and in the world at large. There is no such thing as complete and perfect happiness. No one is without difficulties. Everyone knows what it is to be weary, to be disappointed, and to struggle. We find conflict within ourselves. We find conflict round and about us. This is the experience of every human being. There is always a fly in the ointment. There's no such thing as unmixed pleasure. And we have all discovered, and it doesn't matter how young we are, we have discovered this, that life does involve us in difficulties and problematical situations, and there is a feeling that we were not meant for this. We don't like it and we want to be delivered from it. I think Lloyd-Jones is really insightful here. He has captured a universal truth of humanity, that there's always a fly in the ointment. There's no such thing as unmixed pleasure. In fact, one of the earliest realizations we come to as a child is that things are not the way They're supposed to be. It's one of our first kind of existential uh, conclusions we make in the world. And when we started this sermon series in Genesis, we said that this is a book of beginnings that answers some of the biggest questions in life. So far, we've answered the question, why is there something rather than nothing? It's a big philosophical question. If you remember, here's the answer we came to. The reason there's something rather than nothing is because a good and generous God decided to magnify his glory. To display his glory. To express his truth, goodness, and beauty through creation. We also answered the question of who we are. As human beings, who are we? And here's the answer we came to. That human beings are image bearers created in the image of God with inherent dignity and value. And that we were all created for meaningful and purposeful work as we enjoy and build God's kingdom. Now we want to answer the question that we've all asked at one point in our life. Or maybe even you're asking this morning, why is life so hard? Have you ever asked that question? Why is life so hard? Why does it seem that everything is broken? And is there any hope that it will ever be restored? Last week we looked at the moments leading up to the fall of humanity as our first parents, Adam and Eve, rejected God as their rightful king and as their loving father. And now the rest of chapter 3 details the consequences and the curses of the fall. You could think about it as the fallout from a nuclear blast of sin entering into creation. Eating of the fruit was the nuclear blast and now as God talks about how the world will be, it's the fallout from that explosion. And Genesis 3, 8 through 24 gives incredible insight into why things are so broken. And you might expect that it would be all bad news. That everything that follows in Genesis 3 is all bad news. But What I want to point out this morning is that weaved throughout the whole chapter are threads of gospel hope. It's not just all bad. That every time there's a pronouncement of something bad, you'll see underneath the surface is a silver lining, this gospel hope. So first in verses 8 to 13, we're going to see hiding and pursuit. Fear, guilt, and shame drive Adam and Eve to hide from God. But we're going to see that God in his love and his mercy pursues them second in verses 14 to 19 we're going to see consequences and grace one of the realities that we have to come to as we understand about God is that he is both a God of incredible justice that he is right and just to punish sin in fact his character demands that he take action but the surprise is not that he judges sin but that his judgment is tempered by grace Third in verses 20 to 24, we'll see exile and hope. Adam and Eve are kicked out and exiled from the garden, but as they leave, we're gonna find they're clinging to the promises of God and because of that, they have hope. So our three headings this morning are gonna be hiding and pursuit, consequences and grace, and exile and hope. So start with me in verse eight to see hiding and pursuit. And Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, if you remember from last week, this is where we ended. If you remember from last week, verses 6 and 7, Adam and Eve had determined that the forbidden fruit, which was supposed to be distasteful to them, which was supposed to be um, uh, forbidden to them, they saw it as good. They, they reversed God's pronouncement on it and called it good. And they were captivated by this opportunity for, to define for themselves between good and evil. And so they ate. And then the Bible says that their eyes were opened and immediately they felt exposed and vulnerable. See, it's not that they didn't know that each other were naked before. It's that it had never occurred to them to be otherwise. They had never felt this impulse to cover themselves up. They never questioned it, and they were never ashamed of it. See, before sin, they the Bible tells us they were naked and unashamed, which means they were fully seen, they were fully known, and they were fully loved together. But as sin starts to enter into their DNA, doubt creeps in. Insecurity creeps in. And when those two things happen, you feel exposed and vulnerable. And so for the first time, they don't trust each other. And so they quickly grab some fig leaves. They, they have these makeshift clothing to hide their bodies from each other. And then the Bible tells us they hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. Now previous to this moment, we don't know how many days between the creation of Adam and Eve and, and this fall. But previous to this moment, the sound of God coming has been a sound of joy and excitement. God is coming to commune with us. But now, because of sin, that sound is a sound of terror and fear. What does that tell us? It tells us that communion with God has been broken. Spiritual death has begun. And instead of running to God, confessing their sin to him, asking him for forgiveness and help, what do they do? They hide from God. They fear God in a way that they haven't before. Why? Because in that moment, as they hear God coming, they fully expect to be judged and executed. Remember, God told them that in the day you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. And so they they think God is coming as judge and executioner. Look at verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, of course, we know that God knows where they are and he knows what they've done. He's not on a fact-finding mission. But what I want us to see is that God in his mercy and love comes after them. See, we run from God, but he comes to us. God is pursuing Adam and Eve. And he comes to them rather than waiting for them to come to him. If you notice, he doesn't wait for them to get their act together, to have figured out uh, how to clean up their mess. He comes to them in their brokenness. He comes to them in their weakness, in their shame. And I also want us to notice something else about God. He gives them an opportunity to be forthright about their sin. He gives them an opportunity to confess and entrust themselves to him. Did you notice that? He said, where are you and and what have you done? He gives them an opportunity to come clean. See, God doesn't need to hear their story to get the facts. He is omniscient, means he's all-knowing. He already knows what's happened He, in fact, knows more than we might even think he knows. He knows the thoughts and the intentions of their heart. In the moment of them contemplating, taking of the fruit, he was there in their hearts and knew exactly the wrestle and the struggle. And you might expect, as the story is unfolding, you might expect God to come in and issue his verdict and bring down consequences without any kind of conversation with them. But I want us to see... That God is not like we think he is. God is better than we think he is. See, inherent in his character is mercy and steadfast love. In fact, later on uh, in the book of Exodus, Moses is going to ask God to show him his glory. And God reveals to Moses his glorious character. And he tells Moses that he is both a God of justice and a God of mercy. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God of, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. In these couple of verses, we see this, that God is a God of, of perfect justice. He He won't just clear the guilty. He won't just turn a blind eye to it. He will not sweep our sin underneath the rug. God is right and just to punish sin. But here's the kicker. He is a God of mercy. His righteous anger is not tempestuous. It's not temperamental. His anger, the Bible says, is slow. It's measured. It's merciful. God's anger is not like our anger. His anger is the right response at the right time in the right way. His love is abundant and he is faithful and gracious. What God is declaring in Exodus 34, we see on display here in the garden. God is right to come to man and ask what's happened As we'll see in the words that follow, God is right to hold the man and the woman and the serpent accountable for their sin. That's his justice. There will be consequences. But what I want us to see is that God leads with love. He's patient. He's slow. He doesn't come in guns ablaze and being like, look what you've done. Look how you've messed everything up. You had one job, right? That's what you would expect. But he's slow. He's measured. He's patient. Adam, where are you? Adam, what's happened? He leads with mercy. He leads with grace. Now let's see how the man responds. So God has just said, where are you and what have you done? And the man said, well... The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent, you can almost read in there who you made, deceived me and I ate. Now, I'm not sure if you were counting But it takes Adam 17 words before he gets to his part in the whole mess. The woman that you gave to me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. God comes to Adam first. Why? Well, because he's the head of his family and he's also the representative of humanity. But instead of taking ownership for what he's done, instead of taking responsibility, instead of being forthright, what does he do? He throws his wife under the bus. He implicates God as an accomplice for giving her to him. It's almost like it's just kind of coincidental that he happened to eat of the fruit. And then when the intention turns to Eve, what does she do? Well, she blame shifts. She said, it wasn't my fault. It was the serpent. Adam points the finger to Eve. Eve takes that finger pointing and points it right back to the serpent and both of them essentially are pointing the finger at God. God, you gave me the woman. God, you created the serpent. So really, it's not our fault. Their defense is classic blame shifting and nobody takes responsibility for their sin. No one begs for forgiveness. There's not even a hint of remorse. Even though they've been found behind the trees, if you notice, they're still hiding from God, right? They're still hiding behind what's happened, hiding behind excuses, hiding behind their denial. And friends, what I want us to see, I don't want us to cast judgment on Adam and Eve. Why? Because we do the exact same thing. When we feel guilt, when we feel shame, our impulse is always to hide. Now let's talk about these two terms, guilt and shame. Guilt is a legal term. It's an objective reality. It's a status. It's, it's saying there's a reality that I have committed an offense or a crime. And with it now, because I'm guilty, because I've done it, I need to take responsibility for my actions. If you want to get a picture, picture a courtroom here. This is where you're standing for the judge. It's undeniable. You're guilty. You've been convicted. And now you are accountable. Guilt says... You are responsible for what you've done and you are legally answerable to what you've done. You're accountable. And with guilt comes what? This expectation that there's going to be punishment and that you'll need forgiveness. Now where guilt is a legal term, shame is more of an experiential term. It's how we feel. It's an experience of feeling humiliation or distress because of what I've done or even sometimes what's been done to me. Ed Welch, in his book, Shame Interrupted, which I cannot more highly recommend, he says, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did or something done to you or even something associated with you. Shame is uh, that feeling of, of being exposed and humiliated. Shame says to you, you don't belong. You are unacceptable. You are unclean. You are a disgrace. Because you are wrong and you have sinned, the shamed person will feel worthless. They expect to be rejected. And when that happens, that person needs cleansing because of the, of the disgrace that's been done to them or the disgrace they brought on themselves. And, that, and that, a shamed person needs fellowship and community. They need love and acceptance. If the picture of guilt is a courtroom, the picture of shame is a story except your story has been hijacked. And what happens is shame begins to overwrite your story. And it gives you these I am statements that you start to identify with and it seeps deep into your heart. And so it's no longer just this feeling that I might be unacceptable or someone telling you that you're unacceptable. You start to identify with it and say, well, I am unacceptable. I am worthless. I am unlovable. When that happens, shame has taken your identity. Guilt causes us to be fearful of the consequences, the punishment. And our shame makes us afraid that we'll be rejected by God and by others. And therefore, we hide. That's what Adam and Eve are doing. In fact, it's what every single one of us has done this morning as we come into this Boys and Girls Club gym. All of us have this invisible freight liner of baggage behind us. Everyone has a past that we're not proud of. Every one of us has wounds. Every single one of us has regrets. Every single one of us has secrets in our closets. And because of that, every one of us is tempted to blame shift, to deny responsibility, and to hide from God. It's been happening since the very beginning of time. Every one of us, our sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, and every single one of us, look at me, feels the ancient impulse to hide. There is no one, no one who escapes that. Every single one of us feels the impulse to hide. But what I want us to see this morning is that the loving kindness and gentleness of God pursues us. He doesn't wait for us to come out of hiding. Because if he waited for that, we would never come. God pursues us. He comes looking for us. God the Father loves you. And if you doubt it, he has proven his love for you. In Christ. The Bible tells us that because of Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, you have nothing to be guilty of because Christ Jesus has taken your condemnation. Therefore, there's none left for you. He's taken all of it. Your guilt can be removed. He's taken your punishment and therefore we are forgiven. And in Christ, our shame is has a resolution. Our greatest fear of being rejected by God is relieved because in Christ, guess what? You are adopted. In fact, Jesus calls you beloved. Because of that, your shame can be covered. Friends, because of Jesus, there's no reason to hide from God. The first thing we learn about the brokenness of our world is very, very personal. The brokenness is not just something out there. It first starts right here with guilt and shame. And every one of us has an impulse to hide. But the hope of the gospel is that God in his mercy and love pursues us. That's the first thing we learn. The second thing we learn about the brokenness of our world is that God offers grace in the midst of the consequences. Look with me at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, this section, God begins to execute judgment. Remember, God is just. So he's he's explaining what's going to happen as a result of the fall. And it comes in the form of curses and consequences. There are ramifications for what's happened. God is right to punish sin. And hold people accountable for wrongdoing. And so first God comes to the serpent. Remember the serpent is Satan in disguise. He's not some random talking serpent. Some reptile in the garden. This is Satan in disguise. And this curse is a pronouncement of humiliation. You see Satan is trying to exalt himself. But God says you are going to be brought low. The idea here being, and this is very clever on the part of God, in the same way that a serpent lives his life low to the ground, you too will be brought low and eat dust. It's a pronouncement that Satan will never receive the glory and exaltation he so desperately desires. Then God goes on. He says, I will, verse 15, put enmity, that just means conflict, Between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What God says is that there's going to be ongoing enmity and conflict between the serpent and the woman, and between their offspring. Now, if you're tracking with the flow of the narrative, and let's pretend you don't know what's going to happen next, this should be shocking. Here's why this ongoing conflict means that the man and the woman are not going to die today. Up until this point, we should expect the man and the woman to die today because that's what God has said will happen. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Their expectation is death, but God exceeds their expectations with grace. Did you see that? God hasn't given them up to the serpent. We might think that because they've believed his lies and eaten of the fruit that they've joined his side, but they haven't joined his side. God has not given them over to Satan. There's going to be ongoing conflict, which means God has said, you are not Satan's child and you will not die today because there's going to be ongoing conflict. And here's what's more. The man and the woman are going to have children, right? He said there's going to be conflict between the serpent and the woman and your offspring. What God has just told them is that they will have children and one of their children will bring this conflict to an end. In the judgment against the serpent, God has given a word of hope to the man and the woman. Despite the apparent victory that the serpent has made today in causing the fall of humanity, the snake is destined for defeat. God promises that one day a descendant will come from the woman who will deliver a lethal strike to the snake's head and at the same time, you can almost picture it as this uh, uh, descendant is going to, to stomp out the snake's head, that the snake delivers a lethal venom strike to the descendant's heel. That this descendant's victory will come with a cost. What we see here is that this descendant is going to be a wounded warrior. He will be victorious, but he will be wounded. Genesis 3.15 is the first glimpse into God's plan of redemption to rescue his people. Friends, this is gospel grace. We're we're still in the midst of curses, and yet God says there is grace. Despite their rebellion, the snake will not win. That's the gospel. And then God turns to the woman. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now let's stop right there. Notice, as God turns the conversation to Eve, he doesn't call her cursed. He said to the serpent, you are cursed. But he doesn't say that to Eve, nor will he later curse the man. And that alone, I want you to see, is gracious. He doesn't curse Humanity, And again, this should surprise us because you would think that all parties involved in the fall of humanity should be cursed for their actions. Now, certainly, they're going to receive consequences. The impact of their sin will be catastrophic on all future generations, but God doesn't curse them. That's important, and it's his grace. Now, we're told that the woman's consequences will impact her two primary roles given in the creation account. If you remember, the roles that um, the woman has been given were to be fruitful and multiply and to be a helper alongside the man. We talked about how that word helper is, is not demeaning. It's, it's actually a, a term often associated with God coming as our help, meaning what man has been charged to do, he cannot do it alone. It's a task way too big for him. And the first thing we see in the, in the uh, consequences is that it's going to impact childbearing. While we're being fruitful and multiplying through procreation was given as a gift to be enjoyed, now labor will come with pain. Giving birth now and forevermore will be a mix of incredible joy and incredible pain. But even in the midst of this consequence, I want you to hear the hope of new life. God has just told the women, you will have children. Again, that's hope. Humanity will live on. Adam and Eve will have children and they will get to be fruitful and multiply. Though death is coming for them, today will not be the day. God has decided to stay their execution. Now the second consequence that we find impacts Eve's relationship with her husband. Did you remember what he said? Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So what's going on here? Well, first, from a big picture level, God is saying sin is going to drive a wedge between Adam and Eve, and by implication, all future marriages. See, their life together was supposed to be marked by multiplication, fruitfulness, unity, cooperation, and love. But now their relationship is going to have mixed in with those things grief and pain, suffering and hardship. Now let's talk about that word desire. The scripture said that your desire will be contrary to your husband. So what does that mean? Well, in the next chapter, sometimes when we don't know what a word means, we look up that same word being used in a a, a future passage. You only have to turn one page to get to Genesis 4-7. And we read that sin is crouching at Cain's door as he contemplates killing his brother Abel. And the Lord tells Cain, sin's desire is contrary to you. Same word, but you must rule over it. What we see is that sin desires to control Abel or Cain and it's at odds with him. And God is telling him, but you must overcome it. That's the idea of Genesis And that helps us understand Genesis 3.16. The Lord is telling the woman that there will be this ongoing struggle and conflict between the man and the woman. She will have an impulse to control him, and he will have an impulse to dominate her. They will constantly be at odds. And what we see here is that the very gifts and distinctiveness that God has given to the man and to the woman that they were meant to be used for the proliferation and the thriving and flourishing of humanity, those very gifts are going to be used against one another. In other words, God is saying, now and forevermore, humanity will ride the struggle bus. That's what God is saying. Where man was supposed to use his physical strength to protect and provide for his family and for his wife, he will now be tempted because of sin, to use that strength to demean and to dominate. It's an inversion, it's a perversion of that gift. And likewise, because of sin and their brokenness, women will try to subvert the creation order. Instead of using their life-giving care to help and to nurture, they will seek to rival and compete. Now, a lot of people have misused this passage They've they've tried to see in it details and lists of things that, that, that men, what men can do and what women can't do or what they should do or shouldn't do and how their roles in society and the home will be played out. And for sure, the Bible does speak to those things. But what this passage is saying is that the very distinctiveness between men and women, which were supposed to be a blessing to one another, will now be the cause of strife and brokenness. Because of sin, marriage has been turned upside down. And if that weren't enough, there's more. Look what God says to Adam. And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We, we know that Adam failed in his leadership to protect the garden. He failed to speak truth against the lies of the serpent, and he failed to keep the Lord's command. But I also want you to see, instead of cursing Adam, where does the Lord direct his curse? To the ground. It's another subtle implication of substitution. Again, notice that God is gracious to the man. Instead of receiving the curse directly, God allows the brunt of his judgment to fall on the ground. And so, work which was meant to be meaningful and dignifying and purposeful will now be painful toil. We have all felt that. Where the women's pains were increased in childbearing, The men, uh, uh, man's pains are increased in work. And Because Adam is a representative of all humanity, that consequence is now experienced by everyone. Both men and women in our work experience labor pains. Our good work is always planted among thorns and thistles. Our harvest always now includes both wheat and chaff. And then we hear the most devastating consequence given to humanity is that we will all return to the dust. God has kept his word. He told them that for our transgression and for our sin that we will die. And he's made good on that promise. And now fragility and mortality have been hardwired into the fabric of humanity. So when we come to the end of this section, we see that every aspect of life together at home and at work and in community will be marked by grief and suffering and pain what i want you to see when we ask the question why is the world so broken we see that sin has brought about a cataclysmic brokenness that affects humanity in the relationship with god in the relationship with each other and actually with creation itself that there is no place where sins effects do not touch it That's why the world is broken. That's why, as Lloyd-Jones said, there's conflict all around us. That's why your best intentions never measure up. That's why your work is often so frustrated and difficult. And this should cause us to look up to the Lord for help. Here's what I mean. If you and I are broken, guess what? We can't fix ourselves. So turning inside for help is not gonna work. Turning to each other is not gonna work. If the world is broken, then help can't come from there either. The brokenness of all things around us should look for help from the only one who is not broken. Right? If we are broken, we need help from the one who isn't broken. And that's the Lord. That's what we see here in the midst of all the brokenness in our world. That God offers grace to help us even in the midst of our consequences. So where do you turn for hope? Where do you turn for help? Are you looking for help in all the wrong places instead of turning to the one who offers his help free of charge? That's his grace to us. Now let's turn to this final section, the last few verses, where we see that though we are exiled, we are not without hope. So as they're leaving, the man called the wife's name Eve because she is the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. If you remember, at this point, they're still in their makeshift fig leaf clothing. After the curses and consequences come down, their gracious and just judge, after all of that, Adam names the woman Eve because she is now the mother of all living. This is a testament to the fact that in all of the consequences that were handed down and all of the curses that we're giving, Adam is clinging to the hope of Genesis 3.15. He knows that today will not be their last day and Eve will give birth. So he gives her a name fitting with the fact that she will give new life. And her offspring will be the one to crush the head of the serpent. They're clinging to the promises of God. And then in verse 21, we have the first blood sacrifice. Now it's not directly called that, but remember this is written to the Israelites who've been delivered out of slavery through the sacrifice of a spotless Passover lamb. By the time they're reading this account, they've been given instructions on the sacrificial system which was set up to make atonement for sin through blood sacrifice. You have a people who are so indoctrinated in blood sacrifice that it would be hard to imagine that the first shedding of blood for an animal to cover them would not have been seen as a sacrifice. In fact, Genesis 3.21 is the first sacrifice. It's a prototype of what will come in the sacrificial system. One giving its life in place of another. You see, Adam and Eve, they they sinned. And what did they do? They tried to cover themselves. Their solution is inadequate. Can you imagine clothing yourself today with fig leaves? It would be awful. Think about how fragile leaves are. Think about how useless they are for clothing. I think that's a picture for us and how we try to cover ourselves. All of our attempts to cover our sin is like Adam and Eve covering themselves with leaves. It just simply does not work. And so God, as he always does, provides a better solution to cover their shame and he does it through the sacrifice of another. He's effectively saying, you are not able to cover your guilt and shame, but through the death of another, I will cover you. Remember, Genesis is a book of beginnings, and he has laid the foundation for sacrifice. And you will see this come up again and again and again throughout the pages of Scripture that one will die in the place of another. Now, look at verse 22. Of all the tragedies of Genesis 3, the greatest tragedy is that communion between God and man has been lost. It's not simply that man was kicked out of the garden, but that in getting kicked out of the garden, humanity lost access to the dwelling presence of God. And that's what it means to be exiled. In fact, I bet if you were uh, contemplative and thoughtful, you would hear, you you would feel that everybody lives with this underlying and unexplainable sense of loss. Have you ever had those moments where everything's going well? Nothing is wrong in your life. There's no great uh, problems. There's people around you. You feel loved and accepted. Things at work are going well. And yet what? There's a sense, this nagging sense that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Even though on paper it looks like everything's going well. Well, there's this nagging sense that we are not home. And apart from God's intervention, we don't know our way back. And as they leave the garden, God places this cherubim and a flaming sword to guard access back to the garden and the tree of life. And friends, I want you to hear that even in this, there is grace. See, God can no longer dwell with humanity. Because of sin. And God says that if they were to stay in the garden, they would be there by themselves, eating from the tree of life, living forever, but doing so apart from the presence of God. And friends, listen to me. Living forever without God is hell. It is not good to live forever without the presence of God. In fact, it's not living if it's not with God. And so God exiles them from the garden. He blocks them from this tree of life all with the plan and intention to fix what's broken and bring us home. And as we close Genesis 3, there's this le- this, this question, this lingering question. Will humanity ever again gain access to the tree of life? And this theme, as you might expect, is picked up throughout the rest of Scripture. In fact, later on, God is going to call Israel to set up the tabernacle, which is this mobile uh, 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 temple, and in it is this holy of holies. It's this place, this one tiny place now on the earth where the presence of God dwells. And nobody's allowed to go in. And later this tabernacle tabernacle will be replaced by The temple, and both of them, the tabernacle and the temple, have this massive curtain that keeps people out and contains the presence of God. And do you know what is embroidered on that curtain? It's a picture of the cherubim with the flaming swords. Just like access was cut off to the Garden of Eden, the presence of God, they're cut off from it. This holy of holies, they're cut off from the presence of God. And he's reminding them with this tapestry of the cherubim and the flaming sword. What's the point of it? That unmitigated access to the presence of God is still off limits. That's why it's so significant. If you fast forward to Jesus on the cross to see what happens immediately after he dies. Look at that moment in Matthew 27 verse 51. Jesus has been crucified. He's breathed his last. And this is what Matthew tells us. And behold, the curtain of the temple, that curtain I just told you about, was torn in two from top to bottom. What is that saying? The death of Christ makes possible the way back to God's presence. The cherubim's flaming sword falls on Christ as Jesus becomes the way back to God. And then, guess what? In the book of Revelation, as John is describing the new Jerusalem, listen to what he says. I want you to listen for where the tree comes up. As John is showing us a picture of the end of all time, he says, the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystals flowing from the throne of God and the lamb through the middle of the street of the city and also on either side of the river. The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Then they will see his face. In Hebrew, the word face and presence, panim, are the same word. And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp of light, no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever, uh, forever and ever. Seven Mile Road. I hope you hear in these words that our exile will come to an end. The glimmers of hope of Genesis 3 are realized in Revelation 22 that the tree of life that we were cut off from is now replanted in the new Jerusalem. And do you notice what's not there anymore? No cherubim, no flaming swords bearing access. In fact, it's the opposite. We all have access to the tree and the nations are healed. Nothing is accursed anymore. The curse is removed. Night is no more. God is our light and we will see him face-to-face in the presence of God as we live with him, worship him, and reign with him forever. That's our hope, that though we are exiled, God is bringing about the end of that exile. Seven Mile Road, our world is broken. I don't need to convince you of that. It's filled with tragedy and heartache. And because of our complicity and its brokenness, our gut reaction is to hide, and the consequences seem unbearable. And we live every day as exiles. But the good news of the gospel is that we are not a people without hope, because God in Christ has pursued us. and He is a merciful and gracious God, and we have the hope that one day our exile will come to an end. Let's hope in that gospel.